Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is another Kickstarter spotlight. It's a very interesting project that uh, has a couple of graphic novels and then some something of a different sort of follow-up or conclusion uh, that we're going to get into talking about how exciting that is. So uh, joining me today is the writer of that project, uh, Arvin David. Uh, welcome to the show, Arvin. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jace. Nice to be here. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate it. This is a really exciting project. Uh, it's based on sort of a very classical piece of, uh, of English literature, and we're going to get into all that. But uh, got to ask, you know, first time being on the show, we kind of want to get a little background on you. Uh, you have a very impressive resume writing and producing all sorts of different stories. You, you are a, a consummate storyteller. So give us a little bit of your, your background on, on things you've done in the past, things you like to do, where your focus is on, uh, on uh, creative uh, endeavors. I think my probably my problem is I'm not very good at doing the same thing twice. <laughs> so um, you're right. I'm sort of all over the map in in comics. This is my third or fourth sort of series or set of graphic novels. I wrote the Dirk Gently um, uh, comic series, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, for about three years, and that came out of a long history with Douglas Adams and Dirk Gently that goes all the way back to high school when I adapted Dirk Gently as my, literally as my school play. And for reasons that I still to this day don't fully understand, Douglas Adams turned up to watch it. <laughs> and, uh, that sort of began my career. And it's that, that arc of my career accumulated a few years ago when I made the Dirk Gently television series for BBC America and Netflix, starring Elijah Wood and Samuel Barnett, Samuel who also stars in Grey. So, um, so, so there's the sort of Douglas Adams part of my life, both in um, comic books and in television and also in theatre. In theatre, I've also spent time um, on Broadway, where I'm one of the lead producers of Jack Little Pill, the musical based on the Alanis Morissette album. And I had never... Again, I'm just not going to do the same thing twice. I had never done a Broadway show, but I loved that album and I had loved it my whole life. It came out when I was a teenager. And just one day in the shower, I was like, oh, this wants to be a Broadway show. <laughs> so then I had to spend 10 years figuring out how to make a Broadway show. And we finally did. And we've been very lucky. We won the Grammy this year and have a bunch of Tony nominations. And we're looking forward to coming back on Broadway as the world reopens later this year. Uh, so as I say, I'm sort of all over the place. I, I think that, the, you know, most recently, the thing I put in the world, really most recently, was I wrote a Audible original that stars Neil Gaiman and Jewel Staith uh, called The Neil Gaiman at the End of the Universe, which is sort of, a, I don't want to spoil it for your listeners. I just want to tell them to go listen to it. It's only half an hour. It's free if you're an Audible member. And it's a sort of a weird, trippy, Black Mirror, Twilight Zone, half hour in which Neil Gaiman plays a sort of version of himself and Jewel Staith plays a, a ship's computer with a very strange uh, sense of humor. Um, I guess the thing that's consistent in my career is I've always been a fan and I've always sort of gone after the stuff I love and the authors and artists I love and I've been incredibly lucky in that when I wrote, write them fan mail or I reach out to them, a lot of them have written back. And so I've ended up working with Douglas Adams and Neil Gaiman and Alanis Morissette 
And but my original fanboydom, the, the first person I was a fan of, the, the the writer who made me love the language and made me want to be a writer and a storyteller. I can't write fan mail too because he died 120 years ago and that's Oscar Wilde. And so Gray, uh, which is a retelling of the portrait, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray is sort of my fan letter to the writer I kind of venerate above almost all others, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, and it's an incredible story, you know, even though it was written so long ago, it's got themes that are really timeless, you know, in identity and, sort of the, the nature of man, are we good, are we evil, how we relate to people, relationships and, and all that kind of stuff, sort of the masks that we wear uh, would be a, a kind of another theme. So um, if anybody's not familiar with this, this story, the picture of Dorian Gray that, that your Project Gray is, is based on, uh, can you sum it up in a few words for anybody who's not familiar? Sure, it was one of the most sort of shocking novels of its time Essentially what happens in it is Dorian Gray, who's the most beautiful, popular, he's the it boy of his generation. He has the face face and abs to die for and is invited to every good dinner party in town. One day is having his painting uh, painted, his portrait painted, and something magical happens. And he becomes not only immortal, although that would be enough, but he becomes sort of free from consequences. It's as if the picture of him, the painting of him has taken on the aging and all the bad things that could ever happen to someone in a life, which allows him to lead this life in which he can do literally anything he wants. And being a man, he does do everything he wants and everyone he wants, male and female and in every combination. And he sort of kills and rapes and drinks and drug snorts his way through a very long life without ever having any consequences until at the very end of this very long life in which he has destroyed everyone who's ever loved him he realizes what he's become and he tries to atone by killing the painting that by this stage has decayed and is this horrible horrific with all the age and sin and putrefaction of his soul that he's hidden in his attic and he kills it. And the last lines of the book are the police come in and they find this twisted, deformed, ancient, horrific corpse on the floor and this painting of the beautiful young Dorian Gray on the wall. So that's yeah. the original. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating read. If if anybody has never read it, I do recommend it because it, it does have so much to say, and it's powerful in its originality. Although, obviously, uh, you know, the, it's written in the language of the of the time. So, I, I you know, I know some people get weirded out by that. I don't really understand. I, I don't think it's it's hard to understand. I, I read it in high school and and loved it. Uh, and obviously, it spoke to you, uh, Arvin. So, what is it about the story that you think um, connected? to yourself as I imagine you read it, you know, years and years ago, what was it that connected uh, you to the story and ultimately led you to uh, doing a kind of a modern interpretation? Uh, You're right. I did read it years ago. I was given it actually by my first proper girlfriend when we were in our late teens. Um, And so I still have that copy and I've been um, carrying it around me and reading it and rereading it my whole life. I think the thing that's always obsessed me about it is that very simple idea of a life without consequence. Mm. And, you know, it's a question that 
people who love comic books ask a lot, right? If you could have a superpower, what single superpower would you have? And, you know, it's easy to choose flight. It's easy to choose invulnerability or, or something like that. And those are nice things. But my God, a life without consequence, it sounds amazing, right? You can walk into a shop and steal whatever you wanted and no one would mind. You could cheat on your partner and be forgiven. You could never get ill and never die. I mean, it just sounds amazing. And to be loved by everyone, no matter what you did to them. But if you stop to think about it, and that's sort of the adolescent view of it, when you're a teenager, you think that sounds pretty good. I think the first time I read Dorian Gray, I was like, I want to be Dorian Gray. That sounds great. He gets to sleep with everyone. He gets all the food and he never gets fat. He can drink and never be hungover. It's amazing, right? But in real life, to be without consequences is also to be without learning. It's to be without conscience. It's to be without character. And... And so that tension between consequence and character is what I think I've been caring about my whole life. And it's what I'm trying to explore in this. And the thing that prompted it was about two years ago, which is just before I started writing it, it was the beginning of the, of the Me Too movement's current powerful iteration. And really at core, what Me Too is about is saying to people of power, mainly but not exclusively men, but to people of power saying, hey, you don't get to live without consequence anymore. You don't, the money and status does not protect you from consequence anymore, which is the core lesson of Dorian Gray. And so I thought, oh, there's something interesting here. There's a correlation between the story that I've loved and a thing that is affecting the lives of everyone in the world for mainly for good, but also for complicated. And I thought, oh, maybe there's a conflation in these two things. And there was a story going around as a true series of crimes in New York about some beautiful women who were um, enticing men in, in nightclubs and then assaulting them in a kind of vendetta way. And of course, that's now become a bit of a meme and movies like uh, Promising Young Woman very much play on, on, on that revenge uh, fantasy. And so those things sort of started coming together in my head and I, I just started you know, sketching some ideas down. And I was amazed at how much of Gray's basic architecture uh, and character dynamics, you, obviously I've had to change things and tweak things, but the basic dynamics of someone who thought he was without consequences and came to discover that consequences mattered for all his magic and all his beauty um, seemed to still work. Yeah, and that really is the, the biggest change, right, in, in this uh, in this iteration, right? Dorian Gray was a uh, was a man, even though, as you said, you know, he uh, had relationships in, in the original novel with any manner of of you know male, female, what have you. Um, would you say this is a female empowerment novel? Because you know, the first one is a, a morality tale in a way. You know, it is uh, certainly saying, hey, you can live your life this way. But to your point earlier, there are maybe you know you're there's no consequences here on earth but what are you doing to yourself what's your integrity what's your you know self-worth mm-hmm. um and you, you're turning that on its head by changing the, the protagonist around to be a, a female which i think is is obviously very relevant um and maybe there is a level of of comeuppance uh which is part of what the me too movement has been um and certainly we feel like people that did others wrong should pay the price um so are you trying to straddle that fine line by saying, yes, there should be consequences? I guess what I'm asking at the end of the day is, uh, 
is the character of, of Dorian Gray, although female in this novel, is she a hero? It's 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 the right question. I think I think there's a central tension, right, between um, ends and you know ends and means, and there mm-hmm. always has been, and that's a tension that comic books have always been interested in exploring from Batman on down, right? Is it okay to do terrible things in the name of a good cause? And that is the essential dilemma of so many superheroes and classic antiheroes. And I think that's Dorian's dilemma here. So in my version, uh, Dorian Gray is, is, is a young woman who we discover is bent on this m- mission to take down some of the most powerful men in America because she claims or believes that they have wronged women. And she does it very violently and very spectacularly. You don't see it all in the first volume. It's hinted at it starts to get worse and worse as you get to the end. But she is, um, and she apparently can do this without consequence for whatever magical reasons and powers she has, except there's one cop who comes after her and he's a black cop. He's a, he's a African-American member of the, of the NYPD. And even though he's very much a person of integrity as a policeman, he's also a thinking man. And he comes after and she says to him, detective, why are you coming after me? We should be on the same side. America has failed you as a black man every bit as much as it's failed me as a woman. The system does not work for us. We should be destroying it. And his response is, no, that way lies chaos. That way lies the mob rule. We have laws, we have a system. I will help you hold these people accountable, but do it within the law. And that is the sort of that, and and they, spoilers, you know, they have a certain chemistry uh, uh, between them. And and, but then that tension, that battle between them is what I think powers the book. And that debate is what interests me as a, as a, as a writer, as a human being. Of course, I believe that anyone who harms people, who abuses power, who assaults, who harasses, should have consequences. But one of the things about the current moment is we have not yet fine-tuned those consequences. We've gone from no consequences to a kind of on-off switch a kind of cancel uh, or get away with it. And what we are evolving to painfully and gradually is a more granulated, nuanced rebalancing. But if the pendulum, and Gray says this at some point, if the pendulum has swung too far for now, so be it. It's been too far the other way for an awfully long time. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I, it's something that I think about in, in terms of, you know, real world things all the time. Even when you talk about things like politics, you know, conservative versus liberal, uh, if it swings too far one way and, you know, it may swing too far, you know, it's just the, the natural sort of course of, of life. And then hopefully eventually you come to a, an equal, equilibrium. Uh, so we've, we've talked a little bit about Dorian Gray, the, f- the female version here, Detective Hank, who's uh, pursuing her. What about other uh, supporting characters that we'll see? Um, uh, anybody that that comes to mind that you would want to mention and how much fun did you have sort of creating this uh, cast? Because it, it seems like it's a little bit more of an ensemble than the uh, original bigger cast of characters. Well, I've sort of broadened it to the whole Wildin universe because Wild's characters are so wonderful to get a chance to play with a few of them. So perhaps uh, I'll, I'll single out two, two, two of the most 
um, famous in the Wildian universe, um, Lady Bracknell, of course, Lady Augusta Bracknell from The Importance of Being Earnest, the impossible aunt on her relentless quest for cucumber sandwiches and good marriage for her daughter, Gwendolyn. I, I wanted to do something fun with her. And of course, one of the things that Wilde sort of started is the idea of um, sexual orientation being fluid and even gender identity being fluid. He's at the beginning of those things and in sort of modern Western consciousness. And so my, to sort of balance Dorian Gray becoming a woman, my um, Lady Bracknell is a man, uh, is, a, is another detective, Detective Augustus Bracknell, but he's, he's called Lady uh, behind his back in the force because he was one of the first detectives, first police officers in the NYPD to come out as gay in the, in the 60s. He's, old, he's older now, he's retiring. And he's played in our audio version by the wonderful Richard Schiff. And it was just interesting to me, to, who, who, by the way, can nail Wildian dialogue wonderfully. It's a shame he hasn't done it more. He's done a lot of Sorkin dialogue, which is not dissimilar, I suppose. Right. And um, he, um, my, my uh, Bracknell is a sort of queeny, too clever, overdressed by, you know, always overdressed, um, a detective who is the senior detective in this investigation, and Hank Wutan, uh, named for Lord Henry Wutan in Dorian Gray, and played in my version by Neil Brown Jr., another wonderful actor from uh, SEAL Team and Straight Out of Compton, uh, is the junior detective. And they form this sort of wonderful duo. And it's a bit of a reunion for them because I worked with them both before. I worked with Richard many times before, actually, but um, I worked with them together on Dirk Gently, where they played a wonderful pair of detectives. Um, Estevez and Zimmerfield and they were such fan favorites and they had such extraordinary chemistry together they're so unlikely you know Richard is white and Jewish in his 60s and Neil is black and in his 30s and is built like a brick shit house and they you know, were this sort of wonderful odd couple on Dirk Gently and they really love each other and have been such good friends since that I said to them hey you want to you want to get the band back together and play detectives again and so they came on board and so, I'm, so they're a lot of fun. And again, it just was, it felt very Wildian to play with like a, you know, a, the lead detective of a show is sort of a, a trope in our modern storytelling, but they're not normally gay and they're not normally sort of prissy and enjoying their clothes and their fine sherry and their, you know, um, witticisms and epigrams. So that's, that's Lady Bracknell. And then the other character who I love from Wild is a character that never appears in in Wild, but is talked about constantly in um, in, in in one of the plays in um, an Ideal Husband, and he's the character of the Baron Arnheim, who is a sort of off-screen, off-stage character in Wild, and he's an incredibly sort of evil Machiavellian, brilliant, you know, criminal. He's sort of the the um, the uh, uh, oh God, what's wrong in my brain? Who's the Sherlock criminal? The uh, Moriarty. The, the Moriarty. He's the Moriarty of the uh, Wildian universe. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to bring him to life, to actually see this Baron Arnheim? And so he's, he's, a, he's the villain. He's the lead villain, if we have one, of our Grey. And he's going to be played 
um, by a wonderful British actor called Samuel Barnett, uh, who's a multiple Tony nominee stage actor, but is, was also my Dirk Gently. He created the role of Dirk Gently in our series, and we've been looking for a chance to get together again. And so he's going to play the bad guy this time, and uh, it's it's like you've never seen him. He's going to be terrifying. Yeah, and I I do want to talk about the fact that the conclusion is uh, going to be an audio drama, which I I think is amazing. I want I want to dive into that, but um, a little bit more about kind of the um, the the thinking behind this. Um, you yourself mentioned uh, earlier that when uh, the picture of Dorian Gray came out, it was sort of a scandal. You know, uh, Oscar Wilde was exploring these things that that just weren't talked about. Um, and so much time has passed, and yet it feels like we haven't come as maybe as far as we we should have in terms of people being able to to live their lives as they uh, as they wish in terms of of you know what kind of sexual relationships they have, whether it's same sex or heterosexual or or even their own uh, gender identity, and people having the freedom to sort of figure out what that is. There's still a stigma now. Um, how important is it to you, um, both in terms of a, a creator telling stories uh, and personally, how important is it to you to explore these ideas? And uh, is it that you're just trying to continue the conversation or, or in some cases, maybe start the conversation for, for people who haven't stopped or taken the time to, to talk about it or think about it yet? I think the thing that makes Wilde one of the greatest, but also the most misunderstood writers in the English language is the fact that he always did two things at once. He always entertained, but he always pushed the moral universe a little bit forward. And it's easy to miss that second thing because the plays are so funny. They're so funny and you're laughing literally from the first line to the last. And, you know, they are farcically funny. The language is brilliant. There's, you know, mistaken identities and people hiding behind sofas and, you know, lots of funny bits with hats. So they're always funny. And they're all, of course, presented in a kind of now, 120 years later, they're presented as period pieces. But what he always did was to push this discussion in his life and in his work about what is, what is good, what is bad, what is morality and who decides, and how hypocritical is most of the society who decides. You know, Wilde obviously famously went to jail for being gay and was really destroyed, like the ultimate cancel culture. He was at the height of his fame. He had two plays in the West End selling out. He was globally famous. And then there was the knocking on his door and the lawsuit that ended up with him spending four years uh, in jail for indecent behavior, which destroyed his career and killed him. Ultimately, he died a few years after he came out of jail. And you fast forward, as you say, 120 years. And in some ways, we've moved on tremendously. I think particularly, you know, I think the gay, the gay rights march, the gay rights journey is perhaps, it's still not complete, of course, but it's perhaps the most successful single journey in human rights in our history. Because think of how short a time it succeeded in. Obviously, they've been gay people since the beginning of time, but in terms of gay consciousness and gay civil rights, it's a battle that's less than 100 years old. You know, again, you can argue it starts with Wilde, and within 100 years, gay marriage is the norm in almost the entire Western world and is, and is you know, at, at this point in culture, it is completely acceptable in liberal culture. There are obviously pockets 
of America and pockets of the world that are still enormously prejudiced and there's still many individuals who suffer from that prejudice and I'm not seeking to diminish that, but it is on the whole a success story. One of the reasons I wanted to make Dorian a, um, a woman, which to some people I must, you know, I'll admit, particularly to some gay men is sacrilege, you know, Dorian is a, is a, is a, is a gay icon and to, and to make Dorian a woman, you know, I've had some, I've had some very active debates on Facebook and Twitter about this. Uh, but to me, the reason I did it was Dorian was a man who lived without consequence and men have always lived without consequence. To this day, powerful men live without consequence. You can't open a newspaper without seeing that. And it's true in Hollywood and on Broadway and in every world and in business and in banking. Men live without consequence. Women have always had to deal with consequences from the simple biological consequences of sex leads to pregnancy to the consequences of having to take the weight of the epidemic on their shoulders, of being paid less, of doing more at home. I am very lucky to be, I'm, I'm, I'm the son of a refugee, of an extraordinary woman who, you know, was a child refugee from India and retired a few years ago with seven degrees and, you know, seven grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the husband of a black biracial sort of social justice warrior and I'm the father of a tri-racial little girl. So I live with a lot of very dangerous women in my life. The book is dedicated <laughs> to the three of them. And I've always been interested in dangerous women. (laughs) And so to me, like, yes, I'm interested in pursuing the conversation, all the conversations that I think, you know, a a, a role of art is to push conversation. That said, I am, I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a moral philosopher or a politician by profession. I'm entertainer, I'm an entertainer, I'm a storyteller. What I saw first was a good story and I followed the story where I'd wanted to go. And if it ends up going somewhere that provokes interesting conversation in the same way that the original did, I'll be very glad. Well, I, you know what, I think that's a, a, a product of, of somebody who's aware and you certainly seem very aware of the, the injustices in the world. And any good creator is gonna put his passion and something of himself into a, a project. And, and, you know, based on what you're a fan of, you know, I'm a huge fan of Oscar Wilde and, and you know, kind of the, the conversation that he started to, to your earlier point, um, I think you probably can't help it. Yeah, you want to tell a good story, but if you're putting something of yourself and some of your passion into the work, uh, you can't help to have, uh, but to have some of those things come through. And I'm a big believer in being able to, to judge a society or a particular time period of a society by the stories they tell and what's important to them by the fiction that they uh, create. I, I think that that is uh, something that is true throughout uh, human history. Would you uh, agree with that? It's completely true. Um, it, well, it, it's completely true that you can judge a society, but it doesn't always mean that a society that is producing revolutionary work or moral work is itself a moral society. Right. Wilde, of course, would say there's no such thing as a moral or immoral piece of work uh, it's either well written or badly written, that is all. But if you think about it, a lot of the great work has come out of deeply unjust societies. You know, um, Stalinist Russia, to take an obvious example, produced some of the greatest works of literature um, from Solyatsyn back to Dostoevsky. Um, you know, repressive regimes tend to provoke great work. It's true um, in a lot of the great African literature, a lot of the great Indian literature. 
Uh, and it's certainly true, again, it's true of Wilde, you know, one could argue that, you know, Victorian England was a deeply uh, unjust, inequitable, classist, repressive, uh, repressive racist, sexist society. But it let, but because of that, it let great work happen. And I think, whilst modern America is not, um, is, you know, certainly has its wonderful liberal characteristics, it also has, and of late, it's become very clear, it's a country of deep intolerances for itself and for each other. Um, and, you know, I'm an immigrant, I'm a, I'm a serial immigrant. I grew up in Malaysia and Singapore. I immigrated to England and 10 years ago, I immigrated again to America and I only became uh, American last month. My wife and I took our oaths, our oaths literally last month. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's, it's been a long journey and it's, it's nice to be here. But, um, so I, you know, I, whilst I don't, I don't have specific lived experience, obviously, of being a woman um, or um, of being gay. I do have experience of being a, you know, a non-dominant member of, you know, a member of the non-dominant group, both as a person of color and as an immigrant. I know that fear that comes when the dominant note in culture disapproves of you. Um, I know that fear that comes from going, will I get my papers? Will I get my passport? Will they let me in? Uh, I know what it's like to be the only person of color in a room pretty much all the time, my whole career, always. And so I can't not be interested in those things. Uh, but I still, you know, I still thought hard about whether, you know, as a cis guy, cis straight guy, I should be the one to re rewrite Oscar Wilde and talk about Me Too and women. So, and I thought about it a lot, but ultimately I believe an artist has the right to do their work as long as they do it thoughtfully and they research it and they surround themselves with people who are smarter than them. And I tried to do that on the, on the graphic novel, a wonderful all-female art team, uh, Eugenia Kumaki doing pencils, uh, Diane Greenlay doing inks, and Joanna La Fuente doing colors, all wonderfully talented and more experienced in both Joanna and Diane's uh, career, certainly more experienced than me. Also very international, Joanna's um, uh, Portuguese, uh, Diana's Canadian and Eugenia is Greek. So we've been working, uh, you know, uh, three, four countries for two years now. And then on the um, audio version, our director is the wonderful Milena Govic, who is you know known as a as, a, as an actress on a whole bunch of primetime shows, but is also a, a big TV director. She's off directing the FBI at the moment, and. You know, she was the first person I took it to, and I said, "Listen, listen I, I think I was about two thirds way through finishing the graphic novel, and I was like, oh, I just had this idea that maybe it wants to be an audio drama as well.'" And she was brilliantly encouraging and thoughtful about how to manage that adaptation, and so she's very much my partner in the in the making of the audio drama. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm so glad that you you were aware of that, and and you took that sort of approach of of having a a female creative team. Uh, for the 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 first two parts, which will be graphic novels, and then kind of your your showrunner for the audio drama, uh, female as well. Because here's the thing: you, you and I, as males, we don't understand the fear that comes, the inherent fear that comes with being a, a female, and how that fear can turn into anger. Because th that's really what we're talking about um, in terms of of your female version of of, uh, of Dorian Gray, right? There's that anger that has uh, over the injustice of it all that's leading her down this path, and 
inherently, I, I think we just can't understand that we, you know, we try, we can try, as, but not having lived it, not having experience, experienced it as, as males, um, I, I applaud you for, for taking that approach. Um, and it sounds like you were uh, aware of that and, and wanted to be sure to bring in as many female voices as, uh, as possible, right? For, I mean, I mean, absolutely. And, and for whatever reason, it's not the first time I've been drawn to material with sort of female-centric material. You know, Jagged Little Pill is very much that. Mm -hmm. And we had a wonderful female-led creative team there and Alanis Morissette, Diablo Cody, and Diane Paulus. And so I sort of learned through that wonderful experience. I mean, frankly, I quite like being surrounded by brilliant, challenging, dynamic women. It makes my days pretty good. And so it, it, wasn't, exactly, um, it wasn't exactly something that I had to be persuaded into doing. And... It makes for a, it, you know, just I think any sort of diversity of viewpoint and experience just makes for better creativity. I, you know, I've been lucky to have been in and to run a number of writing rooms for TV shows, and you want them to be as varied as possible so that everyone's different life experience and not just, you know, varied by gender and orientation and race, sure, but also varied socioeconomically and geographically. And you want people to have done real jobs. Like, I think of a thing like the worst writing is done by a group of people who've never been anything but writers. Mm -hmm. You know, one of, one of, another one of my great heroes, you know, Douglas Adams, you know, his, his bio was always hysterical because it would say things like, you know, Douglas has worked variously as a bodyguard, a butler, a builder, you know, a guitarist. And, it's, and they're all true. He was a bodyguard to the Saudi royal family for about six months <laughs> because he was six foot five and could look intimidating. And I think the more experience you bring to any storytelling, just the better it's going to be. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for, for living uh, as a writer. If you're going to write what you know, then live as much as you can because it gains you that, that knowledge. That, exactly right. I also just want to go back to something else you said, which was about fear uh, and the fear that so many women live with. And that's, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, Grey has at its heart, uh, it, it's, it's only hinted at, but it, it sort of becomes clear, but you know, sexual assault is at the heart of Grey. It's sort of the inciting incident of the story. Uh, as it is, in Jagged Little Pill. And we learned from doing Jagged Little Pill how telling that those stories helps the fear go away. And we had these sort of wonderful experiences of every time we did the show of women and men, but mainly women, but people coming forward to us and to the actors and coming forward on social media and in person and telling their stories. And to some extent, what what Gray is doing, and we're, we, we're partnered uh, with Rain, you know, the nation's largest anti-sexual violence uh, organization, and they're providing us with you know guidance and training for the cast and um, resources for readers who who need resource, and the details will be in the books and so on. Um, is that again, you can tell an entertainment, and but you can deal and you can tell it, and I hope it's told with fun and style and. You know, we're obviously talking about the heaviest issues in it, but it's a, it's you know, it's I, I think a fun ride, but even a fun ride can deal with real issues, and 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 that to go back to the idea of that that fear, you're right. You and I are lucky. We're we're lucky, but we're also um, unlucky unless we can 
find the empathy and find the relationships that let us, if not feel it, at least begin to try to understand it. Because if we don't do that, we don't understand half the people we love in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good point. I think the thing about fear, um, and, and, you know, again, I, I could be wrong. I'm obviously not a woman. Uh, but the thing about that fear is so isolating for them, right? And so I think when you do things like Jagged Little Pill or things like Dorian Gray, and you start the conversation, like we were talking about earlier, it allows people to reach out and not feel isolated, you know, not think I'm the only one that's scared, right. you know? And I think it's important for, for men to, to be aware of that so that you can reach out, so that you can come into uh, a situation. And, and you know, if there's anything I've learned being, being married, knowing my wife for 20 years, it's that... They don't need you to fix the problem. You just got to reach out and listen, right? Just listen to what they're saying. Don't be a problem solver. As men, we always try to be problem solvers. Just be a good listener. You know, reach out, acknowledge their fear and say, I'm, I'm, I'm here. You know, I'm here to listen. You're not alone. And I think that, you know, having uh, creative projects like Jagged Little Pill and like Gray are, are an, an important way to start that conversation and bring us all together through a shared experience of, uh, of, of, you know, reading the graphic novel or going to see the play or listening to the, to the audio drama. Yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the structure. You know, we, we obviously we've mentioned audio drama. So you've got the first two parts as graphic novels and then you're you're finishing up with an, uh, an audio drama. Will there be a, a print version of the, the uh, audio drama or will it just be the two graphic novels and then finishing up with the, the audio? No, they're, 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 they're both, each medium, the graphic novels and the audio are very much their own thing. They are complementary and they sort of tell the same story. Uh, the audio does take it further into the future, but they are, ultimately they are so their own thing that there would be no translation of the one to the other. So you don't have to read both or to experience both. I hope everyone does, but you could be completely happy if you if you if you hate audio drama, if you hate podcasts, and then don't listen to it. Just buy the book. But if you hate books or never sit down and just want something to listen to in your car, then do the audio drama. But they work together. But the the sort of structurally, what happens is this: is that the events in the books happen, and Dorian Gray does what she does, and our detective tries to catch her and fails or succeeds as, as, as he does. I won't, I won't spoil it, but it plays out. The crime, the, the crime thriller, the detective game of cat and mouse between Dorian and the detective sort of plays to its end. She, she, um, she, she has her vengeance, but also comes into consequence. And, and, there's a, and, 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 so, and that's the story told in the graphic novels. And it's happening now, right? It's happening today. It's a contemporary story. Then what happens in the audio drama is we're 20 years in the future. We're in 2040. And we have someone looking back in a sort of true crime format at this crime, the thing that Gray and her sisters did that has become one of the great legends of the modern world one of the crimes that changed the world in a way that the assassination of JFK, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the way of 9-11, a crime, you know, a, a gunshot that rang out across the world and changed the path of history. And from the perspective of 20 years on, this journalist is looking back at Dorian Gray. 
But the problem is, unlike all those other things where we know who did it and why they did it and they got caught, Dorian's never been caught. She just disappeared. And this journalist who's, who calls herself Speranza is a young woman, a young black woman, determined to figure out the truth of this event that changed the world. And, the, uh, and, and that's the format of the, of the podcast. And it's eight episodes. And it sort of, so it sort of retells some of what we already know from the graphic novel, but it brings a different perspective and some new characters and it lets you see things because she's recreating it by getting police files reopened and going and interviewing the survivors and interviewing the old, the now very old and doddery uh, detective Bracknell and his partner. And so you, you, it's, it plays a kind of true detective game with, with the events of the graphic novels. Uh, I think that's incredible. Uh, you know, we're going to get to read the first two graphic novels and get to know that these characters in this world that you've created so intimately. Uh, and then we're going to get to hear it brought to life by this incredible cast that you uh, put together. It, I, I mean, I love, I, I, I'm, I have an Audible membership. I love uh, audio. It's, it's so hard to find time to read with everything else that, you know, goes on. So when I'm in the car or, you know, when I go to bed at night, it's, it, it, it's what I'd love to do. So, uh, you know, you are distributing through uh, Kickstarter. Can you talk a little bit about deciding to go the, the crowdfunding uh, route with this? Sure. So, you know, we've done things both ways we've done books in the normal way and audiobooks through audible and we've also had we, we, we did a kickstarter project last year which was a tabletop game which was a retelling of the frankenstein tale called mother frankenstein and it did extremely well on kickstarter and so when we started to do this there was something about the I guess the fact that I had come to it as a fan, that this was very much a passion project and that a lot of the cast were friends who we knew each other through our sort of common fandoms that we had done Dirt Gently and Jagged Little Pearl together. That sort of just felt like it wanted to start somewhere where the fans could have a piece of us and could be part of the process. And, um, you know, we're partnered with a publisher of the graphic novels, Clover Press, is publishing, it will be in stores eventually in the usual way. But we thought there was a chance to do some exclusives on Kickstarter and and really for the audio drama, because audio dramas are to do them well is is not cheap. You know, you can, you know, books on tape are relatively easy. It's just one person reading. Ours is not that. Ours is a full-on, full cast audio drama with sound effects and, and music and sound design and Cars will screech and doors will open and, you know, and we're recreating the form of a true crime podcast. So it's going to sound amazing. It's going to sound, you know, like serial and it's going to feel real. And I've always wanted to do the thing that, you know, another hero of mine uh, is Orson Welles. And I've always wanted my go at War of the Worlds. Yeah. Know, when he brought the country to panic and made everyone convinced that the aliens, the Martians were here. And... I don't know if anyone's going to panic when they listen to Grey, but I think they might, you know, if you chance upon it, you might think it's real. And getting into this true crime story and wonder about this group of female vigilantes, because let's be honest, there are so many, you know, true crimes that most people don't know about. Every time there's a new documentary or a new podcast, you're like, how did I not know that, you know, the 
garbage man killer killed 72 people in California. How did I not know that? But there are all these terrible and interesting things that happen in the world. And so, um, so yeah, so we thought we'd do it on Kickstarter to start. And we've, you know, we've, we've had success there before. We have a community of people who've backed us before. And so we thought we'd try and yeah, we go, we, um, we launch a Kickstarter next Tuesday, uh, the 20th of April. Um, you can find us if you search for Gray or if you go to sistersofgray.com and uh, we'll see how we do. Yeah, I, I, and I think it's great, you know, uh, it's why we do these Kickstarter spotlights because to your point about, use that word community uh, and you're bringing together so many uh, different of your fandoms, right? Like you yourself said, it's the jagged little pill community. It's the the Dirk Gently community coming together uh, to support this project, hopefully, and to see it come to life. And there's definitely something to be said for going directly to the fans. It kind of removes that middleman barrier, and you get uh, more direct feedback, right? Is that something that you enjoy? I, I I love it. I love it. I as I said earlier, I'm someone who's always written fan mail. You know, I sort of my career has been about writing fan mail. And then being lucky that people like Douglas Adams and Alanis Morissette and Neil Gaiman wrote back. And so I am scrupulous about responding to any, you know, tweet or Facebook message or online review that I get that asks me to respond. And also as a writer, particularly in this last year but during COVID, you know, we've all craved human connection. Mm. And and one of the joyous things about a platform like Kickstarter is you're in direct, constant communication with the people who are reading you and are rooting for you and, and who hold you accountable. And so, yes, I enjoy that very much. You know, like any debate in these times, there are times on Twitter where I think, oh, really, that's enough? Yeah. You know, just... Take a take a take a breath. Take, take a deep drink. Go and lie down. Come back later. Um, that's my advice to myself, as much as my advice to some of the other people. Yeah, right. um, but yes, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy that interaction. I also think there's something wonderful about taking out the middleman. But and again, particularly at a time where um, th- those gatekeepers are all shifting and changing anyway. Right? Mm-hmm. We've seen. In television, you know, cinemas, obviously, and I was very sad this week to see that Arclight Cinemas here in California is shutting down. It makes me very, very sad indeed. You're seeing a lot of comic book stores and independent bookstores having to close or at least restrict their operations because of the pandemic. So it's a difficult time. But what we found um, during this time, a lot of us who tell stories for a living, is that the appetite for story hasn't stopped. And so right. if you can do it in a way that goes straight from your brain to their brain, from your keyboard to their screen, then um, there's something very satisfying in that. And Kickstarter is a great platform for doing that. I know it's not the only one, like I really enjoyed our work with Audible and we're gonna do more. Like we, you know, we had this show on Audible, it's still on Audible, called The Neil Gaiman at the End of the Universe, which I mentioned earlier, which was this joyous thing. We Neil and Jewel and, and I did it all during lockdown. You know, that's the other thing. A lot of actors particularly are just stuck at home, right? They can't be on stages. You know, there's a bit less, even you know, film and TV shot for a while and everyone's sort of backlogged. And so, so my, one of the reasons for doing the audio drama, one of the selfish reasons, is I get to get together with a bunch of my friends and we get to make art 
from our studies and bedrooms and living rooms. Right. You know, you just make a tent out of a blanket and you've got a recording studio and <laughs> just, you know, buy, buy a microphone and, and you're good. And so, again, there's that real joy of just reaching out through the screen to someone who wants to hear your story and giving it straight to them and not having to worry about commissioning editors and, you know, um, uh, platforms and studios and networks and bookstores and publishers and just going, hey, do you want do you want it? Do you want it? I'll write it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll write it. She'll direct it. She'll say the lines. You got it. <laughs> Done. Yeah, and it's great from a fan per perspective. You know what I love about it is the fact that I'm I'm directly supporting the, the the creators that I that I care about. You know, I know so much more of my uh, financial support is going to them rather than some faceless corporation or or whatnot. Um, are there any particular reward tiers that you uh, obviously it, it hasn't started yet as as we're recording this, um, but are there any particular reward tiers that you want to uh, let people know about? Any you know big surprises <laughs> or really cool things? Um, yeah, we're doing a few things. We're trying a few things that are a little different. I mean, first is you have full freedom. If you want to buy the book, you can just buy the book. If you want just the audio, you can just get the audio or you can get it all bundled together. Uh, so there's a lot of flexibility there. We're doing a first 48 hours um, only tarot card special. There's a lot of mysticism in Grey. There's a whole mystic ritual that comes in volume two and obviously had the nature of her power is magical. So we did these beautiful tarot cards of uh, 10 of the gray characters. And uh, those are those will go to anyone who backs in the first 48 hours. Um, you can add them on later, but anyone who backs in the first 48 hours will, will get them. And then for the big spenders, uh, because the book and the, you know, we finished volume one of the book, but we're still drawing volume two, and we haven't started recording the audio drama yet. So we're offering a limited number of immortalizations, which is to say, I think it's for a very reasonable, I think it's for $300. We will draw you into the book and wow. give you a chance to do a line on the, uh, on the audio drama. I think we're only gonna do a limit, I don't know how many, maybe 20 or 50 of those, but there'll be a limited number of those that, uh, that will be available. So yeah, we're trying a few fun things. That that yeah that is very reasonable. Uh, it's not it's not the first time I've seen that in Kickstarters for comics, and usually it's much more. And this one, not only are you in the book, you get a line in the audio drama. That's amazing. Well, it, again, it's one of the joys of modern sort of digital you know production is uh, we can do that today. That's yeah. what COVID taught us that we yeah. don't need to go to a, a recording studio in Manhattan. Right. We'll, we'll call you on Zoom. <laughs> you'll say the line into your phone. And we'll have it. Yeah, that's <laughs> we'll, fantastic. We'll mix it up, and that will be no different for how all the actors are doing it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Exactly. A second-class citizen. Well, that's great, uh, Arvin. It's been wonderful meeting you and talking about the project. Uh, best of luck. I have a feeling it's going to fund very, very quickly. Uh, so, to all you listeners, uh, there's links in the show notes, both to the website that uh, Arvin mentioned, the Sisters of Grey. Uh, there will be a link to uh, the Kickstarter page also once it starts. Uh, and if anybody wants to reach out, are you someone who uh, likes to, it sounds like you like to interact on, on social media. You mentioned Twitter earlier. Uh, yeah. where's, the, where's the best place to reach uh, out? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm at RVD, at A-R-V-D on Twitter. That's the best place to find me. I am technically on Instagram, but I'll be honest, I'm not very good at Instagram. <laughs> so, so Twitter is definitely my, my spiritual home. Gotcha. And I'll, I'll put a link, everybody, to Arvin's Twitter 
uh, in the show notes as well. So you can go there uh, if you're having trouble finding it. So uh, as we're winding up here, Arvind, anything else you want to let our listeners know about? Um, this has been great. I really enjoyed this. And um, I hope everyone uh, comes and checks us out. You know, we, I, we'll, we're, we're not everyone's flavor, but I think uh, for the people who like us, they're going to like us a lot. So uh, come come check us out and thank you so much for giving us the time uh it's, it's my pleasure and, and kind of on that note uh sort of playing off what arvin just said uh i'm going to remind everybody as always even if this if you go and check it out and you don't think it's for you or you want to join but you don't have the means how you can really help out arvin and his team is to share it on social media so anybody who uh, might not otherwise see it but would join the campaign gets a chance to see it the more eyes that are on it the more people that want it can check it out there's nothing worse than finding a Kickstarter the day or two after it ends that you would have uh, joined the campaign and been part of the community. So uh, please share it on social media, everybody. Uh, again, links to everything in the show notes. Uh, Arvin, again, pleasure. Uh, I can't wait to uh, check this out. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Yeah. And to all you listeners, uh, thanks for joining us. As always, we appreciate your support and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.